Good morning. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 25, we'll conclude this morning our uh, time in the Word um, regarding the return of Christ and the end of the world. It really has been just a study of Matthew 24 and 25, is all it's been. But we are at the end this morning. And I want to begin by sharing a little bit of a, it's a thought that's been traveling along and never quite had the time or never had enough votes to make it in. Um, It has to do with uh, the way the end of the world doesn't, uh, it's not very easy to talk about Jesus in the end of the world with people who don't know Jesus. It offends their sensibility, I think Judgment Day does. The topic of Judgment Day is pretty offensive in our, our culture. The topic of judgment is offensive in our culture. And uh, so there's a lot of things that if you're trying to share Christ with a friend uh, or colleague, a lot of things about Jesus that we feel excited or able to talk about, his love, his forgiveness, his care, his, uh, in many ways, his non-judgmentalism, which is equally profound in certain ways. Uh, We can talk about that, but when we get to Judgment Day, oh, Judgment Day, how do we talk about that? I think something that's kind of, has happened in churches, uh, good churches even, is an attempt to find out, is there a way we can do evangelism well without the entire story? Not that we don't believe the entire story, not that you don't believe the entire story, but can we evangelize or apologize, you know, in apologetics? Can we defend the faith well and share the faith well outside this community, uh, maybe without the 24th and 25th chapter of Matthew? if we really work hard to sell the love of Jesus, can we put the judgment of God at the end of time, can we put that off until they're in? Can that be a tract we give them on the other side of the baptistry? Um, What I want to offer is, obviously I think the answer is no. It doesn't make me any better at it. I feel... I feel the the discomfort. So the discomfort I'm talking about, it's a discomfort I'm confessing that I think is familiar to people who have somebody who just doesn't want to hear that people go to hell. But this is an important uh, thought that has been traveling along. There are certain ideas, certain complaints that the non-believing world has that are answered, in fact, by the day of judgment. And this is one of them. I have a buddy of mine who's wrestling with God and says to me, if God is good, why does evil prevail? Why does evil prevail in this world if God is so good? Well, that's, evil doesn't prevail. It's judgment day. Right? Christ gains victory over sin at the cross and claims it on judgment day. And that's an important part of our story as Christians. Important part of our story to a world that is, doesn't want to deal with judgmentalism but also sees the evil at work is 
God comes and puts an end to it. Another thing that the judgment day is helpful for, reason it is an important facet in the gospel. Okay, it's not that there's the gospel and then there's judgment day. It's an important facet in the gospel. It's because what I find, especially in this culture today, is we all hate evil, but none of us will admit its source. Like, evil's not a spirit. It's not a force like gravity's a force. Evil is a thing that is done by people. That's it. It's a thing. It's a noun that is committed by humanity. Cain killed Abel. A person did it. And so when we kind of leave the last part of the story off, we, we, we soothe. We run the risk of soothing, uh, soothing the very people that we long to invite into the grace of God. We soothe them with uh, either I, we repel them from God with God doesn't care about the evil in the world, or we soothe them with the notion that uh, we, humanity, are not the problem. We're the problem. And Judgment Day says that. Judgment Day says God's coming back. He's going to judge and have victory over evil. And that is going to take place on the souls of men. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us to rightly internalize all of your truth. And we need wisdom, Lord. I pray for wisdom. Every culture has... uh, a different challenge with your gospel, Lord. And I I believe that speaking of your judgment, your holy, righteous judgment, heaven and hell, it's it's ours. It's it's a challenge for us, Lord. So if there's people here this morning who need just to, to confess that to you, Lord, that this is hard, hard, hard for them to talk about, maybe even challenging for them to think about, Lord. Um, I, I ask you this morning to invite them in to the goodness of your victory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to walk through uh, the end of chapter 25. We're going to go verse by verse and study the day of judgment. This is what uh, the 20, chapter 25, verse 31. Let me just read that. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's not a parable. Some people refer to this as the parable of the sheep and the goats. What I just read to you is not a parable. Anything parabolic about it? It's a teaching. The Son of Man, it's not if he's coming. When the Son of Man comes, angels will array themselves around him and he will be in his glory and he's going to sit in his glorious throne. I have no reason to believe anything other than that literally will happen. It's a teaching of the word. Daniel dreams it. John sees it. It's a teaching of the future. It's not a parable. 
There's nothing about this that's parabolic. In a moment, he's going to invite us into an image of sheep and goats as a metaphor or a simile. He's going to use it. And it's not even quite sure if he continues to use it or if he uses it kind of like for a moment and then leaves it. There's so much overlap there. That, but this is, this is a teaching. We should receive this the way we, the prophets should have received the teaching that Jesus Christ will one day be born in Bethlehem. They should have received that. They should have received that Jesus Christ would be born of a Virgin Mary. They should have. Jesus is coming, and it's big. This is one of these moments where our imagination fails, and if you're an unimaginative person, you're cursed. Because uh, blessed are the imaginative in verses like this. Um, I, this is great. You could spend all day on this verse. If you could take a day off from work and just visit about what this might be like. This is what it says in 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The Lord's going to gather all the nations before him, is what he says. All the nations are going to be gathered before the Lord. So the whole world, let me just fan the flames of this image. When the Lord comes in his glory, and the angels are in his wake and train, singing the very things they cry out in heaven, this cacophony of worship around him, and he sits on this glorious throne, he in some... I have to say, unimaginable way is going to harvest the people of every nation of the earth and array them around his throne. They'll be before him. We will be in the scene of God. All the nations will be there. My feeble grasp of this is like the Olympics, the opening ceremonies, when the nations come in. But what's interesting is, is he's not going to present the nations by flag or banner or nationality or people group or ethnicity or language. He's not going to do that. There's not going to be a demarcation of color or anything like that. It says he gathers all the nations of the world, but he separates the people one from another. That somehow the king can look at this huge mob of humanity and, and will look down and based, not based on the things that you and I separate and divine by, but the th- something that he sees, he's going to separate individuals, individuals, not nations. This nation's not sheep and that nation's goats. One from another, sheep, goats. To people who uh, were in agriculture and and herding, sheep and goats would herd together. They grazed together. They uh, grew in the same habitat. So a shepherd would often have sheep and goats in the same uh, same field, same flock. And so he's saying there's this intermingling throughout all the nations. There's this intermingling of people that... 
not, it's none of the things that you and I look at to make discernment on who a person is. God's going to look in and grab one out and one out, and he's going to separate them carefully as one would glean out the sheep from the goats in a field. Notice he says he's going to do it like as a a shepherd separates sheep from goats. It's a simile. It's not even really a parable. This is pretty big overlapping idea. I think the Lord is comfortable talking about this way because the Lord talks about himself as the great shepherd of the sheep. So to say this even just invites a big overlay of the word onto this word, to think about all these ideas. The Lord is also a sheep himself. He's the lamb of God, is he not? He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you know in the book of Revelation, which is a visionary anticipation of the day of the Lord, he is, the, Jesus Christ is referred to as the lamb more than any other label. The throne is the throne of the lamb. The book of life is the lamb's book of life. No one else's. It's not Buddha's book of life. It's the lamb's book of life. Thirty-nine times the word lamb shows up in the New Testament, 30 of them in Revelation. He's the lamb. You have this, um, I think it's uh, pretty profound that the great shepherd sees people and recognizes them as like him or not like him. Like the lamb looks out and sees other lambs. He knows his sheep. There's a way, and I don't want to overplay this connection. I don't. I think this is the rest of the word comments on this. It's not overly commented on here. It's hinted at, I think, by his, the, the lamb's selection of sheep's from goats. But in in the word, there, it clearly when the king sits on his throne and looks out. He's going to see something, and he sees either you look like him, and you're on his right, you're placed to his right, or you don't look like him. And I think of all the times in the New Testament that the language is used of us of conforming to the image of Christ, of becoming new. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he's admonishing the church because there's a lot of license in the church of misbehavior. And he's saying, you understand the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he he reminds them of the list of obvious vices that tempt us to perdition. And so he goes through anger and lust and all of these things. And he he says, "You you know there's no place in the kingdom for a person who's defined by this. And he says, and that is what some of you were. It's one of the best verses in the Bible. Because he says, and that's what you were, but you've been washed. You've been cleansed. It's as though we were all goats at some point. It's what we were. Romans says it this way. Paul in Romans says, walk in newness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're a new creation. Behold, the old is past, the new has come. 
In Christ, we are a new creation. This is the theme. The Lamb of God will sit on the throne of the Lamb with the Lamb's book of life and look out and separate sheep, those like him from those who are not like him. And it's worth noting in verse 33, there's just two places. There's the right and the left. Uh, this, by the way, is I think what... It, the simplicity and black and whiteness is part of what's so offensive to our sensibilities, our anti-judgmental postmodern sensibilities. The fact that it's just so simple here. It's right or left. It's black or white. It's binary. It's unambiguous. There is no gray. There's gray to you and there's gray to me. It's not gray to the Lord. Lord, he either knows you or he doesn't know you. Let me read 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And a a little bit later, he's going to say to those on his left a different word. He's going to say, Depart, you who are cursed, to the eternal fire. You see the difference? Come. Come, use my right. Depart. Blessed on the right. Cursed. To your inheritance of the kingdom. Think of that. You and I have an inheritance. Those who are in Christ. I don't want to say you and I. The sheep have an inheritance in the kingdom. That means, that's a bigger phrase than I... It may just pass through us. We are inheritors of a kingdom. What if, what if a lawyer walked into your house and said, you've inherited a kingdom. Like you're the missing. When Queen Elizabeth II dies, you're that person. That's what it's being said here. It's that sort of inheritance versus eternal fire. So it's not simply black or white. It's not simply either or. It's not simply clearly cut. It's extreme. So not only is there no ambiguity to the Lord, no middle space, no no gray, but the realities of each are starkly different. And he goes to describe why the basis Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I don't think this is justification by works. I think the Lord is here is giving a basis or a reasoning behind how they're sheep. He's saying because people's works are fruit of their salvation. Everyone who is in Christ will do the things of Christ. There's no disconnect there. So the visible evidence of our spiritual connection with Christ is works. And he points to them. Not only does he point to them, he doesn't say you fed hungry people, you gave thirsty people something to drink, you clothed people 
who were threadbare, you visited sick people or people in prison. He didn't say that. He looks to the sheep, he says to them that their acts of righteousness are to be directly attributed to his very personhood. The glorious king on the glorious throne surrounded by hosts of angels in this magnificent scene is at the same time saying, when I was without clothes, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. Sometimes we banter about there are multiple ways to heaven. I just think this story is so Christocentric. Jesus alone comes to judge mankind and judges them based upon how they treated Jesus. I just don't know the room for any other idea. People are surprised. Let me read 37 through 39. Then the righteous will answer. I like that. They're called the righteous. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They they didn't see it. (laughs) This is what the Lord says. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, I I have encountered, every now and then when you're reading the Bible, you you see something you didn't see before. And this happened to me this time. When I was reading, I encountered a word. And the word was brothers. I had never seen it. In my... Quest, you know, like, you know how you know what God wants to say, so you yada, yada, yada through the word? I was yada, yada-ing through Judgment Day, which is never a good thing to do. And I yadded right over brothers. I just assumed, he said, as long as you did it to one of the least of these. Like, did it to the poor. But he didn't say that. He said brothers. His brothers are sisters, by the way. It's, it's, a, kin, it's a kinsman word. Which you'd say, well, big whoop, but that's what I said. And then I started reading and studying on the word, and everywhere I went, they paused on this, and they said, this is, not, this is pretty unusual. They said, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus never, ever, ever uses the word brothers to refer to people. It's either to brothers or sisters or to disciples. I'll give you an example. In Matthew chapter uh, 12, Jesus is teaching, and somebody comes to him and says, your brothers and your mom are looking for you. You know what he says? My brothers and my mom. And he takes his hand and he does this. And he points to his disciples. He says, these are my brothers. These are my brothers. In fact, I want to read you exactly what he said uh, because it's insightful. He says in verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So when he's saying it in the 25th verse, it's showing up there. Let me me read it to you uh, another way. In Matthew 10, okay, 
In Matthew 10, he's sending out the disciples two by two to go on ministry. And so he's preparing them for the hardship they're going to receive. You're going to be without food. Okay, does this sound familiar? Without drink, you may find yourself without clothes. Or you might find yourself persecuted. You'll be a stranger in a strange land. You may find yourself in prison or sick. I mean, he's saying those sorts of things to them. Those very sorts of things he's saying to his brothers. Then he says this, whoever receives you receives me. Does this sound familiar? And whoever receives me, excuse me, and and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Listen to this. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. That's the same teaching. Is it not? All of these teachings are related to the disciples of Christ. What I mean to say is what the king is saying. So he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And he goes through the various scenarios of need and want and and falling short where needs were met. He goes through that whole list and they say, they say, when did we do this? When did we do this? And he, his answer is, when you did it for one of the least of my disciples. When you, when you served the disciples of Jesus Christ, not just the 12, those who would follow. When you were careful with them, you did it unto me. I re, it was as though I received it. I was on the receiving end of that because I was in that person. And they were, they were at work in the kingdom. Now, I will admit, this has been interesting for me. It's rattling. When you're comfortable just thinking of an old teaching in an old way, and then you stumble on something that forces you in a new way, it's been a rattling adjustment for me. Formally, I just kind of had an ecumenical mindset about it, that we should be I'm dumbing it down, uh, but I think you can appreciate it. I just kind of thought we should be have a ministry of mercy to poor people in their various sorts of poverty. That's not really what he's saying here. I'm certain the Lord, the Lord's character is consistent with someone who sees poverty and desires the richness of Christ to be resident in it. Okay, that the, Lord's, the Lord's nature is there. So I'm not saying he doesn't care about the world. I'm saying what he specifically is looking for the rationale being used here in Matthew is the way that one Sheep treated other sheep. Here's the effect it has on me. Okay, it has bothered me all week. Uh, This is the effect. When it was, whenever you saw me hungry, you fed me and thirsty, when it was just generic, kind of a global ecumenical, do good things for people in need teaching. The way that lands on me, and I imagine the way it lands on many, is that that is such a huge charter for a believer. Do you realize that even if you 
are Mr. Philanthropy. You don't do that far more often than you do it. I mean, where do you start? The need is endless, seemingly endless. I mean, there's earthquakes in Japan and tidal waves in Southeast Asia that I don't even mourn over. I mean, I take it in as unfortunate data. There's genocide. There's infanticide. There's massive slavery throughout the world right now as we speak. There's totalitarian regimes that do all sorts of things. But if the teaching is that we're going to be determined as sheep by the virtue of the fact that we tend to all these needs, I'd say who, who is a sheep? Who among us is on the right? I'm just saying, if you take, it's like the camel passing through the eye of a needle. Like you take it seriously and you're disqualified. So your mechanism of faith says, well, I just won't take it seriously. Like he's just kind of, this kind of means every now and then. And we always assume we're doing it well enough. Like you figure out your kind of soft teaching threshold and you put yourself right over it. So it must mean that I just made it. Now, I'm saying that is at work. When, when these teachings are big like that, now, if it, when Christ says, oh, but Christ didn't say to the least of these, he said to the least of these, my brothers. When the moment you say that and you own it, now something, this entire teaching localizes. This entire ecumenical teaching of everywhere I see brokenness, I rush in, which is just beyond my capacity to even grasp as a human, when it begins to close in now to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I I know who that is. It's you. You know who it is. It's you. Sometimes when a teaching gets local, it gets harder. That's where I was all week, is I wished it was global. Because when it's global, I'm always doing better than the next guy. When it's local, I know, I know, I know names of people I have to love. Like immediately when this came into me, I was like, ah, dang it. But I didn't say that. I said the other one in my mind. Oh, like God is saying to me, you know, so many of our songs have to do with the Lord not abandoning us. The Lord won't let me go. The Lord, he remains with me. This teaching is the Lord saying, how have you let me go? How do you not see me in others? I'm saying is this teaching is not, you're not allowed to kind of blow this teaching up into an unrealistic spectrum and then kind of gain an Aesop's fable principle out of it that you did well on. I'm saying there is a very localized particular truth here, which is how do you see the glorious Christ enthroned on the Lamb of God in the ugliness of other believers in your circle? Do you see it? I 
Acts 2, in describing the church, says, and everybody shared possessions so that there were no needs among them. Acts 4 says they sold land and gave it to the disciples as there was need. Do you see the truth playing out here? Uh, Acts chapter 6 talks about the church uh, caring for the widows, feeding the widows at the table. Galatians chapter 6 says, be kind to all, especially to those who are in the community of faith. Did you hear this? James 1 says, this is pure and undefiled religion, that you care for widows and orphans in their their distress. That entire book is about the conduct of believers among believers. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about a body of many parts. And when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. And he talks about different parts of the body. Some are admirable and everybody wants to be them and some are humble and modest parts but are there from kind of, they are especially important at certain times. They need a special care all the time. Do you see the spirit of this teaching in all of this? Uh, We'll finish the reading and then we'll come back to it. We're going to zip through Uh, Goats, I'm assuming nobody here wants to understand what makes a goat. I think you want to know what makes a sheep, right? We're in the business of sheeping. So 41, I'm not saying it's unimportant, but I don't know who the goats are. Jesus does. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. I don't know why he doesn't say brothers there. It may be because they're not brothers. It may be because if you don't do it to the family of believers, you won't do it to anyone anyway. Not to the measure that's genuine before Christ. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. You know, the ugliness of people, I'll say it this way, I mean, people are beautiful, but there's the ugliness of poverty. If we all, everybody wants to always be in a group of wealthy, beautiful, functional people. That's what we want. That's not what God asks us to see. God asks us to see his beauty in people, the richness of his wealth in people, the wholeness of his gospel in people, in broken and ugly people. We have to see through the opaqueness of human frailty. That's what the Lord's saying. The Lord is essentially saying, I'm judging you on your ability to see me the way I saw you. I who came to an earth that was utterly opaque in its brokenness. I came, sacrificed that you might be a new creation. I know my sheep because they have the same perspective around other people. 
This is why we pray. This is why we're told to confess our sins one to another. This is why the church is told to ply itself in the discipline of exposing its own weakness into the daylight. Because we're supposed to know that it's the treasure of Christ in us that makes us wealthy, not the frontal facade of beauty. This is such, this is heresy to the suburban world. Hide in your garage, present your yard, don't let anyone know what's going on. This is why, this is why time and again, I could just, why we, we don't, the church local doesn't find out about frailty until it's falling off the cliff. Because in our minds, it is to be hidden. Don't you see that's where Christ is hiding? This is why we pray together. This is why we'll pray together. We should continue to pray together. This is why we should confess. I am certain in, in this church there are many sheep, but we need to hone our sight, our vision, so that we can see Christ. Because I don't know whose goats, that's for the Lord. I do know I want to be a sheep. I really want to be a sheep. We're going to pray. We're going to actually sing a few songs. It's time to recollect. And I want to offer, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to assume everyone here even is down with the story of Jesus. Or, uh, but I will say the Bible's clear that the end is coming. He presides over the end. There's two places there's two kinds, and the Lord is the, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of that moment. There is no other narrative that will suffice. Jesus sits on the throne and judges. And I want to say that is a great apologetic for some of you. You need to hear it. You need to hear for far too long you have been your own master and commander that is against, against the person of Jesus Christ. And you're commanded by him to repent. I say that as one who is in the folds of repentance. There's others here who, uh, maybe you're feeling, maybe you feel like, I know there's a person God's called me to in this fellowship. The particular teaching, the moment it gets local, I know there's someone, I, I, God wants me to see him through this person. The person in need Maybe you need to respond to the Lord. Do you realize that your service to that person is direct attribution to the person of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're weak and you just need to confess it. Either way, I'm going to pray and people come down to pray in the corners, which is customary. If you need just someone to pray with and we'll sing, we'll stand and sing and I want you to be able to respond at this time. Pray with me. Lord, Lord, we want so much to be able to see you. See you on this day, Lord, and yet you're telling us that we should, we should behave in a way that would see you every day. In places and in people that the world would tell us to pass by. In circumstances that uh, are low circumstances, Lord, not high circumstances, circumstances that cost us.
time and energy and reputation. And Lord, you said, blessed are the poor of spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. You said, blessed are the meek. Lord, you said we had to come to you like small children. I pray, Lord, we'd put our pride away. Our human earthly stature aside, Lord. Set it aside, Lord. So that we could see your beauty and your wealth and your wholeness, your riches and and low things. In Jesus' name, amen.